Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, proteins, galaxies, and sleeping pills. In addition, we're joined by Mr. Ivan Semenik, who will discuss everyday science. Also, we'll find out why TNT explodes. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week, coming right up here on the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? In a crime-busting mood. You're going to solve the crimes in science or just the crimes of nature? <laughs> crimes of marketing? Uh, okay, I guess I'm the fraud buster today. You're uh, like the new David Horowitz. <laughs> Fight back. <laughs> we'll call you Frank Horowitz. <laughs> so this story has been gaining quite a bit of attention. It was on Fox News and then on CNN. Apparently a guy named Danny Klein in Clearwater, Florida has allegedly produced a water engine. He claims he has an engine that runs totally on water. All right. But the problem is, he says that so far his technology is hybrid, therefore you must also use gasoline <laughs> in order to power it. And so, for whatever reason, people are pouring a lot of interest in his invention. In fact, I think there's some people who are going to give him money to build a Hummer or something. Well, you know, people are entitled to throw their money down the sinkhole. <laughs> yeah. He claims that somehow he has an electrocharge mechanism that converts water to HHO. HHO. <laughs> yes, I'm not sure what that is. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's funny yet it's sad because I think he's just exploiting the complete lack of science knowledge though. Yes. The maybe were... maybe he's actually, you know, a shill of the Bush administration. Didn't all the problems start from Florida? Yeah. Or, or <laughs> a shill rather of the oil industry. Right. But it turns out we're not the only country that's slightly ignorant. It's a company in New Zealand and they sell Waiwera Infinity Water. And their model, they claim that they shrink their water molecules so that supposedly it can travel to your body faster and can penetrate your cell membranes more easier. Brilliant. <laughs> I need to get some of those miniaturized water molecules because the ones I've had, they're so fattening. <laughs> <laughs> they are, huh? What else they claim is that the water will inhibit excessive fermentation in the digestive tract by indirectly reducing metabolites such as hydrogen sulfide, ammonia, histamines, phenols, and other stuff. Wow, water is more powerful than I could possibly imagine. It must belong to the dark side. Oh, wow. There you have it. Funny, funny yet sad. <laughs> Anyways, there's a lot of hoax out there, so get Be out. on your toes. If anyone's selling you water, anything maybe other than drinking, <laughs> be warned. Even that, right? <laughs> Look up Danny Klein on the internet for the story in the car, and then also Waiwera Infinity Water. They're based in Australia. Well, if that doesn't serve as a big wake-up call, then I know what will. Cheese? <laughs> yes, cheese grommet. It's the cheese grommet. Yes. Uh, no, in fact, it's sleeping pills. Oh, sleeping pills? They're bound to wake you up. Really? They could if you're a vegetative patient. I always try to use caffeine to stay up, but it always actually puts me to sleep. These particular sleeping pills affect the GABA system, gamma-aminobutyric acid. Uh-huh. It's an inhibitory neurotransmitter that exists throughout the brain. And it turns out that when the system's active, you wind up becoming drowsy and like that. Right. But what might happen for people who have trauma to the brain is that this GABA system might start becoming oversensitized and shutting down in order to protect the brain. And so you might have this paradoxical effect. Hmm. 
And this was actually discovered somewhat serendipitously by two British and South African doctors where they gave them a drug called Zolpidem, okay. which is marketed to millions of insomniacs. Uh-huh. And what happened was the doctor had seen one of his patients with a restless leg and he tried to calm it down by giving the sleeping pill and the comatose patient woke up. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So <laughs> try this in several patients and they're able to basically just take this drug and allows them to maintain consciousness for uh, as long as the drug is uh, effective. Okay. But if they stop taking it, then they go back into coma. It's, uh, it's something strange uh, going on with the brains in the comatose patients. They think something might be different with, again, the GABAergic circuitry. Zolpidem somehow changing that process. So they, even if you wake up from this coma, you're probably not sleepy sleep. That's the thing. <laughs> it, it puts you in a sleepy, but you're still conscious yet sleepy. So you're sleepy conscious. <laughs> okay. Which is better than sleepy unconscious. <laughs> oh, that's how I live my life. Nothing really matters. Yeah, I'm sleepwalking through life. <laughs> I'm sleepwalking through this uh, show. Can't, I don't know if you can tell. Is it just a dream? A nightmare? <laughs> if it is, somebody wake me up now. Stop the Planet of the Apes. I'm getting off. <laughs> anyway, so this is very fascinating work. It was published in a recent edition of Neuro Rehabilitation. All right, so one of the holy grails in biologists is to figure out the specific functions of each of the uh, biomolecules in organisms. Not just proteins, uh, but also the other types of biomolecules that exist as well. Right. Small molecules and things right. like that, yeah. And in order to do that, you typically need to get fine crystals, and you take an X-ray diffraction from which you can determine the structure, and then as a result, you can also f- figure out their function. There seems to be a numerical method, which seems promising, will allow you to solve the structural problem without actually having the crystals. Is it just for proteins, or is it for all kinds of different biomolecules? It could be anything. Actually, in the one paper where they discuss how they might do it, they actually did it with a buckyball. Okay. Well, that's a very simple system, right? Because, right. you know, solving the structure of a protein is very difficult because it's a large, large biomolecule, right? And right. nobody really knows how to solve the protein folding problem. Right? Yeah. But they use a method called a pair distribution functions where they take cluster structures of one atom at a time and then fit them with known empirical data and then see how well they match with the whole aggregate. But so the empirical data uh, must come from crystal-type structures, right? I think what they do is the empirical data is for portions of the structure rather than the whole thing. So, but you do need to have little Yeah, you need to have initial data from other structures, or infer from that, I guess. Okay. Just sounds like another computational method to try and piece together structures without having to crystallize. Think, yeah, get away with the crystalline problem that yeah. reduces. It always made me laugh that a lot of the papers in structural biology, there are two. One on how to crystallize the thing that you want to see, and then the actual structure, right? And that's a paper, huh? So anyway, so this was published in Nature, volume 440. All right, well, going from the structure of small molecules to the structure of galaxies. Galaxies. They're big. They're huge. They're also small. You mean they're significant or (laughs) insignificant? By today's standard, the early galaxies that first formed about 13 billion years ago were very small. They condensed under the forces of gravity. Uh And these are called dwarf galaxies. And during the early universe, these were thought to predominate. And the theory is that they prevented the formation of very large galaxies because they emitted large amounts of radiation. But paradoxically, because of their emitting a large radiation, they forced clouds out that were large enough to be separated from the ionizing forces. Uh And so that then, in fact, promoted large galaxies. 
The question is whether or not this theory is actually true. And if so, then you should see a sharp distinction between uh, periods when there are dwarf galaxies and those when there are larger galaxies. And to confirm this, a group of cosmologists, Stuart Wyeth of the University of Melbourne in Australia and Abraham Loeb of Harvard University, found an indirect way to measure it by looking at quasars. And they looked at the light emitted by the quasars traveling to us and measured the level of ionization, found that the level of ionization wasn't very constant, which suggests that galaxies were uh, far less common in the early universe period mm -hmm. and that there were perhaps more dwarf galaxies at that earlier period in time, which then switched over to the larger mass galaxies. Right. So it was very fascinating work and it was published in a recent edition of Nature. And that's all for our look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You are listening to the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Well, coming up next, Mr. Ivan Semenik will join us to answer everyday science questions. So stay tuned. to the Grox Science Show. Well, science is often viewed as being in the business of answering the weighty questions of the universe, like what's dark matter, or even how does the brain work? But questions such as these rarely gnaw in most of our thoughts, or even come up in the course of general conversation. More often, the questions that plague us are on the order of, what is earwax made out of? Or, can a compass work in space? Well, joining us today to discuss the answers to some of these everyday science questions is Mr. Ivan Semenuk. Mr. Semenuk is the U.S. Bureau Chief of New Scientist magazine, which has released a compilation of such questions from their popular long-running column, The Last Word. The book, Does Anything Eat Wasps? and 101 Other Unsettling Witty Answers You Never Thought You Wanted to Ask is now available in paperback. Mr. Semenuk, thank you very much for joining us today on The Grok Science Show. My pleasure. I think uh, most of our listeners are probably aware of the New Scientist uh, magazine port, but for maybe those who aren't, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the, the column. Uh, absolutely. I'd be delighted to. New Scientist, for those who don't know it, uh, is actually the world's best-selling science weekly news magazine. It's based in London, but we have many reporters and editors in the U.S. as well, and we're reporting on international science stories from all over the place. You can also see a lot of those stories on our website, newscientist.com. But, uh, you know, New Scientist uh, is serious about its science, but it also has a reputation for, having, uh, for being a magazine with a certain amount of attitude. Mm -hmm. And we have some very interesting and eclectic readers uh, among our subscribers. 
And those readers like to send in some very interesting, puzzling, intriguing, thought-provoking science questions. And of course, there are lots of interesting science questions in the world. You know, you, you, you go through day-to-day life, you encounter strange phenomena, and you're wondering, you know, what is the explanation for that? Mm-hmm. So all of those questions end up in the last word. And, and really, the stroke of genius, when this column was devised in the uh, mid-1990s, and I should say the magazine's been around for 50 years, so it's got, got a long history of, of dealing with science. But the stroke of genius was not to simply answer the questions or find scientists to answer the questions, but to literally throw the questions back to the readers. Mm. Because we have a lot of interesting people who read the magazine who are willing to weigh in on uh, one question or another. And so when we get an interesting question, like some of the ones you described, we throw those questions out and we typically get multiple answers back to some of those questions and we publish the best of the answers. But what you end up with is not a single answer, but a kind of spectrum of answers, almost like getting a second, third, fourth opinion from a doctor about a particular condition. The reader then gets to form his own opinion a little bit about which of the answers is is closest to the truth. I mean, of course, we do a little bit of pre-screening so there's definitely uh, good science in all the answers, but they tend to all be kind of partial or they tend to take it from different points of view. So collectively, you, you get this really interesting summary. And in some cases, the questions have spawned actual research. They've led scientists and uh, experts to actually pursue deeper and come back with uh, even more uh, interesting or spin-off questions to what were posed. I mean, well, it sounds like a very uh, easy column to uh, edit or even take that, care that, of. That, that's true, yes. The, the editor who has the job of doing the column every week. <laughs> Everyone laughs that he has the easiest job in the magazine. <laughs> Pretty much takes care of itself, eh? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so the book is Does Anything Eat Wasps? And 101 Other Unsettling Witty Answers to Questions You Never Thought to Ask. Why another 101 questions? <laughs> Uh, it was pure luck that when you know everyone got together and chose their favorites, it turned out that there were 102 real winners. Okay. And uh, it, a slightly off of a nice round number seems to be. And of course, that's the way the universe seems to be. It's always just slightly <laughs> off of right. a round number. <laughs> it's really a fascinating book and has a lot of interesting questions. I'm, I'm curious about the, the question that was chosen for the title of the book. Does anything eat wasps? Yeah, this is a typical question in in the sense uh, not only that it's unusual, but also that it got a lot of answers. In fact, it got so many answers that by the time you're finished reading this one, you might start to think, does anything not eat wasps? (laughs) You know, we had bird experts come back to tell us that over 100 species of birds eat wasps. We had someone do some experiments for us with fish and frogs to find out that, you know, they'll happily eat wasps. Uh, Of course, there are burrowing animals like badgers or bears that like to dig around and eat wasp larvae. We have a strange case where someone wrote in and saw, literally witnessed a crab devour a wasp while he was walking along the seashore. And we've even had readers write in that that they themselves have enjoyed wasps from time to time. Anyway, and you can find out more about uh, which creatures actually make wasps a regular part of their diet. But apparently being stung is not a problem. Uh, Well, I'm sure everything tastes good with chocolate. Well, of course, yes, and I think that might be another factor. Um, uh, Well, sort of the food theme, I'm curious about the question of how long could you possibly live on just beer alone? Yes, interesting question. And again, we had lots of our readers willing to uh, respond to this, some of whom seem to have been interested in trying this experiment. Uh, No one has actually done the experiment to its ultimate end, you know, to see how long it would take for someone to croak on a diet of beer. Um, But clearly the answer is you can survive a lot longer on beer than just by water alone. Uh, Beer does have a certain amount of nutritional value. It's actually high in certain vitamins because of the barley uh, that it's based around. 
And to some extent, a kind of experiment was done during the 17 Years' War. So in the mid-1700s, sorry, the Seven Years' War, in the mid-1700s, a British doctor actually sent different ships to the Americas, wasn't the U.S. Mm -hmm. at that point, and one of the ships had the standard allotment of spirits for the sailors, mm -hmm. but another ship was sent uh, with lots and lots of beer, but no spirits. I see. And the journey was longer than expected because of blockades and so on related to the war. So actually, these guys inadvertently ran short of food, all of these ships. The ship that had just the beer, as opposed to the spirits, had far fewer sailors requiring hospitalization. Mm. So it seems that they, on the whole, fared better on a mainly beer diet in that particular case. So there's at least one historic case where it seems beer uh, it, it helps you survive longer. Of course, it doesn't mean that long-term that that's the way to go as far as your liver is concerned. Yeah. But anyway, it, it's good to know that you can at least get a little ways on beer alone. Uh, I'm sure that's uh, good news for all the bar goers out there. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, there's a related alcohol question regarding the mixture of Tia Maria and cream. Yeah, absolutely, and it's, it's actually hard to understand how exciting this is until you've done it yourself. <laughs> I, I didn't know about this until this question was sent in. Tia Maria, of course, is a coffee liqueur. In North America, Kahlua is, is a bit better known, and the same thing will work with Kahlua. Mm -hmm. What you do is take your uh, glass of Kahlua or Tia Maria, and you spoon on a little bit of cream. We're talking about, you know, maybe eighth of an inch, maybe less, maybe a sixteenth of an inch, just a tiny bit of cream. So one spoonful of cream or or one and a half tablespoons of cream on top of a glass full of Kahlua, and immediately something very unusual will happen. The, the cream will start to break up and start swirling, turning over in these cells. Imagine if you have a pot of soup boiling, and you know how soup kind of simmers when it's at the boiling point, kind of turns itself over. The same thing happens to the cream, but of course you're not applying any heat, but clearly there's convection going on. So this was a very interesting question. This one was out there for a while. And this is exactly why the last word works so well, because, you know, there's no immediate answer at hand. Lots of readers wrote in with different guesses about chemical reactions between the fat and the cream and the alcohol. Mm -hmm. But in the end, what happened was we had some researchers, uh, actually a team of American and Spanish researchers, started playing with this and got hooked. And, and they literally researched the entire thing thoroughly to the point where they were able to publish a scientific paper huh. on this, uh, these solitole uh, convections, they're called. And to make a long story short, what's happening is that cream is lighter, that's less dense, that's mm -hmm. why it floats on top but it has a much higher surface tension than the alcohol. So when the alcohol diffuses up into the cream, it reduces the surface tension at the place where it kind of comes to the surface, and immediately the cream pulls away from that spot. That pulling away draws up more alcohol, and the process then, it kind of jump-starts a little, a little engine that just starts turning around. And really, it's mesmerizing. You actually forget to drink the Kahlua when you try this, because it's, <laughs> it, it, once you start it, it goes on for several minutes. Wow, better than lava lamp, huh? <laughs> it, it, you know what? It's very much like the lava lamp, absolutely, like a two-dimensional lava lamp. And, you know, my wife and I were just doing this on the weekend. Uh, I, I want to remind myself of how long it worked, and we, again, we were just marveling at it. So I recommend everybody try this. All right, well, next time I guess you're out there getting a drink. Uh, yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, well, I guess something that might uh, be a corollary to drinking all this alcohol was the question, how fat would you actually have to be to be bulletproof? Yes, okay, so, and this is where you find out how truly weird new scientist <laughs> readers are. So, yes, you know, the impact of a bullet on the human body is something that has been studied, and, of course, there are different ways of doing that. One way, especially if you're trying to do a controlled test, is to use a kind of gelatinous material to see how far a bullet will penetrate. 
and that material is kind of a stand-in for body fat. I mean, of course, it depends on the firearm, on the range in which it's fired, but if we're talking like a standard 9mm ammunition and fairly close range, it's generally like a 1 to 2 foot thick block of this gelatin that will stop a bullet. Mm. So if you extrapolate, you can imagine if you were so fat as to have a layer of fat around your entire body that was one to two feet thick, you could, in a sense, become bulletproof. You could just by having enough fat to stop a bullet. Of course, you know, you would also be about 1,500 pounds at that point. And so I guess you would need all that fat. You certainly wouldn't be able to run away from anyone who was brandishing a weapon. So it's not necessarily advised, but that, that's the answer. That, uh, and we had a few different people come around to about the same answer. Okay. Well, uh, I guess a trade-off between either the risk to your heart or the risk from a bullet. Yeah, exactly, okay. exactly. Uh, well, I guess impacts of a different kind. A question regarding can cats actually survive a fall from any height? This is interesting because there's a fair amount of research that's been done. Of course, we all know about the fact that cats land, tend to adjust their bodies to land on their feet and seem well-suited to absorb falls. Now, of course, because cats are also great companions and pets in cities for people who live in apartments and you know don't want to have a dog running around in their apartment, there are many cases of cats falling off of high-rise balconies, enough cases where people have done studies to look and see to what extent those high falls are fatal for cats. The surprising thing is that there's almost virtually no height at which a cat can't survive a fall. Mm. Part of the reason is because cats are much lighter, they have a high surface area, they reach a terminal velocity, the maximum speed mm. at which they fall. It's a much lower speed than the human owners of these cats would have if they fell off their balconies. Right. So once a cat is at that terminal velocity, it's not going to fall any faster. So basically, a survivability that uh, is independent of height, and quite a few numbers of cats can survive very high falls. The interesting thing, though, is statistically, it seems like cats that fall from the seventh floor Mm -hmm. seem to have least chance of survival. Mm -hmm. Uh, If they fall from a higher height, they actually have a better chance of surviving. So what is it about the seventh floor? And one theory, Vance, in the book is that it doesn't take very long to fall from seven stories, and the cat is still surprised and rather tense. That, you know, so it's kind of stiff as it's falling. As the cat is falling from a higher height, it actually, uh, by, because it's falling longer, it's no longer accelerating. It's already reached its terminal velocity. So even though it's falling fast, it's not speeding up. And at that point, the cat actually starts to relax again. And so is better uh-huh. equipped to handle the shock of landing. So that, that's the theory anyway. But it's this very odd statistical oddity that the, that the cat mortality peaks at the seventh floor. I see. I'm curious how many uh, of these questions come from younger readers. There are a number of them come from younger readers, and some of them are passed on by parents. I mean, these, many of these questions are questions that younger readers or, or the children of readers ask their parents, and, and the parents just don't know, so they, they send them to us. We had a question from a, a young reader who buried a pet guinea pig in the backyard and, and just wanted to know how long before my, my pet is bones. You know, how long does that take, and, and things like that. So we had another really good question from a younger reader reader about what would happen if you were on top of a volcano and it erupted and you had to get down as the lava was pouring out was there some kind of material or rock or something that would allow you to surf down on the lava like a skateboard sort of thing effect down the lava and could anything protect your feet as as you were doing that and actually we had some very interesting serious well thought out 
answers to how you would <laughs> skateboard or surf your way down a flowing river of lava. And is there any material that could withstand it? There were several put forward. Aluminum oxide seems to have mm. been about the most popular and, you know, various thicknesses. Of course, if you had enough time to make yourself a boat of aluminum oxide, that might be even better. And even, believe it or not, there is this property that wood has hmm. where once it's scorched, it's actually much harder for the, the wood to burn underneath that because, oh. in effect, the, the carbon that scorches the wood on the outside oh, sort right. of seals off the wood from being fresh fuel. So as long as it's for a limited period of time, a good solid piece of oak could get you quite far on a river <laughs> of lava. All right. Well, hopefully it erupts in an oak forest then, I guess. is the... Exactly. All right. I guess we are running slightly out of time, but I'm curious, did anyone actually think that the uh, column would actually be going this long? It, it, no one had any idea when this started, but it shows no signs of stopping. Mm. And, of course, we continue to have questions that has of yet have not been answered. This week's issue has just as many interesting questions as years ago, and, and this shows no sign of stopping. And, of course, for those of you who have never heard of the book, and, and if you've got a book where once it's the perfect opportunity, write into New Scientist, and we'll happily take a crack at it. Well, well, I, I certainly encourage uh, all the listeners to do that. Uh, Mr. Semenik, thank you very much for uh, joining us today on the Grok Science Show and discussing the book, Does Anything Eat Wasps? Thank you very much. And you were just listening to Mr. Yvonne Semenik talking about the new book, Does Anything Eat Wasps? Here on the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, coming up next, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. All right, we're back, and we're ready to play our game, the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer, which was formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, answer or no answer. So for the following five questions, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if there's a possibility that it will be answered or not answered. Uh, Mr. Semenik, are you ready to play our game, the Grokatron 5000? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Question number one, how many licks would it take to get to the Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Pop? I'm going to say no answer for that one because so much depends on the nature of the lick and who's doing the licking. I mean, is it a bacteria lick? Is it a, <laughs> a, of course, a big enough tongue could, could take the entire... Anyway, so I'd say no answer. Okay, I guess, I guess the owl in the commercial is right. The world may never know. <laughs> okay, uh, question number two. What's wrong with Michael Jackson? No answer, and or too many answers. <laughs> too many answers. Probably a little too complicated possibility. There. Exactly. Question number three. Where are the weapons of mass destruction? Ooh, good question. Is there an answer? I'm going to say no answer. 
partly because it's a negative result. So, you know, you can never prove a null result. So, so just scientifically speaking, it <laughs> okay. can't be definitive about a, a lack of, you know, absence of evidence, absence, evidence of absence, all that stuff. Right. Sometimes even fabricated results. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I say no answer to that one as well. Okay. I'm doing great. I haven't answered Well, well I, I guess these are unanswerable questions, it turns yeah. out. So um, question number four, when will the housing bubble collapse? Well, that does have an answer. Yeah. It's just the answer is going to come after the fact. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right, and finally, of course, question everyone's dying to know, what's the meaning of life? Oh, well, I think that has an answer. And the meaning of life is, uh, well, I don't know if I should tell you, but it has an answer. Uh, maybe for everybody to decide for themselves, I guess. Exactly. <laughs> but right. definitely there's an answer. Okay. Uh, well, uh, Mr. Semenik, I do want to thank you very much uh, for sticking around and playing our game, the Grokatron 5000, and, of course, talking about the book, Does Anything Eat Wasps? Once again, thank you so much. Hmm. And Yoda, what the answer to last week's question of the week, explosive TNT is trinitrotoluene. Mm-hmm. When it decomposes into nitrous oxide gas, sudden expansion there is, and boom, the explosion you have. Mm-hmm. Powerful, the forces. All right, all right, it's Jimmy Johnson, old-time radio star, here with this week's question of the week. You know the radio beams carrying this program to you, you are loyal listener. It's coming at you far and fast, but so are those gamma rays. Well, what are they and what do they do? Well, I'll tell you next week. But if you know, you can email us at grocks at You're not going to win anything, but hey, you just might tune in to something special. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. Music.